Sound of sleeping, too afraid of what might show up while you're dreaming. Nobody, nobody, nobody sees you. Nobody, nobody will believe you. And every day you try to pick up all the pieces, all the memories they somehow never leave you. Nobody, nobody, nobody sees you. Nobody, nobody will believe you. God only knows what you've been through. God only knows what they say about you. God only knows how it's killing you. But there's a kind of love that God only knows. God only knows what you've been through. God only knows. Well, good morning, everyone. Whoa. That's how we say good morning. We get your attention. <laughs> well, it's so good to be in this place together. Uh, praise the Lord for another new day of life. Um, you know, when we, um, we wake up in the morning, we recognize that God gives us our new day. It's a gift, and we want to use it uh, to glorify Him. He puts breath in our lungs, and uh, He gives us um, the privilege of living a new day, uh, all to bring Him glory and to bring Him honor. And so, uh, it is good to be in this place, and so I hope that you do feel that way, and you know, often I'm reminded that we all come to this place on a Sunday morning or whenever we gather, having had different experiences throughout the week, um, even this morning, just on your way to church. Uh, there are some, you know, in our gathering that are still making their way here. And so, um, but it's all good because, you know, now that we are here, we recognize that, um, that, that God is with us as he always is but in a special way in this place because we are gathered. And gathering together is very biblical. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 2 the great blessing of the church as they began the brand new church, as they gathered together and gave their attention to the preaching and teaching of the word and prayer and fellowship and eating meals together. And so there is something very special about gathering together. And so this morning in our gathering, we're going to worship God. Uh, just like the ancient church did. We're going to worship him through song in just a minute, through the reading and hearing of his word, through prayer, through fellowship, uh, and uh, it is all to be a blessing to him. Amen? And so uh, we truly do not believe in coincidence. God has his sovereign hand involved in every area of our lives, every detail, and so you are not here by accident um, God has you here for a reason. He has plans and purposes, and ours is simply to trust him and to be obedient. Um, Psalm 19 is one that's kind of been uh, on my heart recently, and um, it's been going through the text thread of the men's ministry, and it came up 
uh, even in uh, my um, podcast recording with a couple of local pastors this past Thursday. And so I wanted to share a portion of Psalm 19 with you. Uh, it's a beautiful psalm where we see in a very uh, pro- poetic way God's creation speaking forth praise about him. Uh, and creation is pictured as giving God glory and being under his sovereign plan and hand. And the second part, which is what I'm about to read from Psalm 19, um, then transitions to his word. See, God has revealed himself to us through his creation and through his word. And so here's what the psalmist says about God's perfect word. In the psalm, it's called the law. And so listen to these words as our call to worship this morning, and then we'll, we'll stand and sing. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, and it restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey also, and the drippings of the honeycomb Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. And then he ends this psalm by saying this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you stand with me, please? Let us pray into worship. Father, We thank you for your wonderful creation. We see it all around us. We see it in the beauty of what you have given to us to live in and to gaze upon. We thank you for the the beauty of snow, of the way the sunlight reflects off of it this morning. God, all these things can remind us of your greatness, of your power, of your beauty, and your heart for creation. We thank you also for your word, for revealing yourself, holy and righteous God, to us through your holy and perfect word. And God, we echo the prayer of the psalmist that the words of our mouth this morning and the meditation of our heart right now would be acceptable to you, for you are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer. It's in his name that we pray, and it's to his glory and honor that we lift up his name now in worship, for you alone are truly worthy. So, Father, accept this worship now. May it be a blessing to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, can we worship together this morning? Lord, our God. my 
Let's pray together. God, maker of heaven and earth, our maker and creator, what a privilege it is to worship you and to sing these words that remind us that you have invited us to call you Father. Who else invites us to call him Father? Only a holy God. God, we have gathered in this space to let you know how much we love you, to worship you through song, to open your powerful word together and to be transformed. God, you are worthy, worthy above every other praise we can give, about every other song that we can sing, Lord God. We offer ourselves up to you now. God, we, we realize that you deserve so much more worship and praise that we can give, but Lord, we give what we have, which is ourselves. Have your way with us, Lord, and thank you. Thank you that you've invited us to call you Father. Praise you, Lord, for that. Father, we say thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray and praise you. Amen. Amen. What an awesome time of worship, church. Say good morning to somebody next to you. Would you do that?
tonight, if we could uh, make our way back to our seats. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's good. Um, it's good that we, um, we fellowship together. Well, that's a big part of why we, we get together, right, on a Sunday is, is to encourage each other, to remind each other how good God is and that we're not in this alone. That's a really important part of why I think God created um, fellowship, unity in fellowship. You know, we see it in the Trinity exemplified for us, but we get to be reminded, you know, that um, now that we don't have to go through this life alone and that we don't have to live out our Christian walk alone. We have sisters and brothers to help us do that. And boy, that is so vital and key to the life of believers. And so praise God for that. Um, before we dive into God's Word, and we're still in the, the book of Matthew, um, chapter 5, you can turn to that. But just to have a few quick announcements, we call this Church Life. Um, and uh, just remember, too, that this Wednesday coming up is our uh, Narcan training uh, seminar. Uh, there's a bunch of other churches that are invited to come out. And actually, one of the churches I invited said two weeks ago they just did their own. And so we recognize the importance of this. And so that is this Wednesday right here in the church, uh, in the back of the fellowship hall, from 6 to 7. It's just a one-hour training, uh, but just uh, um, to learn uh, what it's all about, why it's important to know how to use it, what it is, how it works, and you walk away with a free kit as well uh, to keep in your home, wherever you feel that would be necessary. And uh, it's also, um, and again, this is free, and so we just ask that you would uh, go to our website and check out all the information, but that'll be here Wednesday from 6 to 7. And uh, not only is it good to always have this kind of information and training and knowledge, but also in preparation for our outreach that's coming up this Sunday. Um, and so that is the 28th, it's next Sunday. That's our annual Delaware outreach. We partner with the Sunday Breakfast Mission there and um, uh, we leave right after church. So uh, as long as the pastor doesn't talk too much, then uh, we'll be able to leave on time. And uh, so right about 12 o'clock, as soon as the service is over, we gather in the back, we pray together, um, and we'll figure out who's driving down there. But we also ask that you uh, dress warm because it is outside uh, and bring a lunch, just brown bag it because we'll eat sort of on our trip down there uh, because there's some other ministries that set up where we're going. We want to be able to coordinate with them when most of the people are there. So uh, please just make a note of that. If you plan on coming, just uh, come to church ready to leave right after service, and we will um, eat lunch, so bring your lunch with you, and we'll eat it together as we carpool down, all right? Um, any other announcements, anything that I missed, and Elizabeth, about that? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so we need that, good. Perfect. Good. Yes, that's right. So if you're coming and you're, and you're able to drive, make sure you have a full tank of gas. It's kind of like we, we try to get down there right at a certain time, so that's important. Um, and as Elizabeth was mentioning, um, last Sunday during our missions team meeting, we put together over 60 blessing bags they'll be bringing down with us in addition to coats and hats and all that. But there are a few supplies 
that are needed, and you can just bring them next Sunday. We can bring them with us throughout the week or Sunday. So trial size shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste, anything like that. So if you want to put that in your notes for today, you can bring that to church. Whether you're going on the trip or not, um, those supplies would be needed. Uh, and uh, we've been giving out so many blessing bags. People have been taking them during the week, and then this event, we give out so many, and so extra supplies would be great. Thank you for that. Um, and then finally, just a last quick announcement. Um, you've been hearing about this the last few weeks, and so the, then the following Sunday, which is February 4th, that's the first Sunday of the month, we have our fellowship lunch. Of course, that is Communion Sunday. But later on that evening, uh, we get to come back for a very special event. So we're going to have a special screening of this uh, a very powerful documentary called Hope in the Holy Land. I've seen this. Uh, I sent out a link for it if you're on our email list. Um, and there's also a link for it on our website that you can, because you can watch, you can rent it or buy it at any time. But we're going to have a screening here that evening uh, along with a, a Q&A with one of the producers, Justin Crone. He will be in town uh, to do that. And Scott Schwartz, our, uh, one of our missionary partners with Life and Messiah, will be moderating that Q&A. And so we'll get to watch this documentary. It's about a two-hour documentary, and then afterwards have a time of Q&A. Uh, and so uh, please plan to do this. And I would also ask that you would um, spread the word about this. Maybe even if you can't make it, let others know, especially those you think might be interested in this. But um, this documentary was put together just about two years ago. But of course, it's still extremely timely, especially with the events of the, the war in Israel as we continue to pray for Israel and everyone in that region that's involved, uh, this, this couldn't be a more important time to watch a documentary like this. If you go to our website, trinityallenwood.com, you'll see a brief description of it, why it was made, um, what the, the whole point uh, is about it, but it's simply a documentary about a, a pastor who's got a heart to learn more about this conflict where he goes and he interviews just regular everyday people, some religious, some not, some uh, Israelis that are um, religious, some that are not. Um, he interviews Palestinians from, different, from that region, from different countries that are there, some that are um, very religious and some that are not. So you get very different perspectives. And what he walks away with, I think, will really touch you and is very powerful in helping us to understand um, that ancient conflict that still rages and is doing so in such an intense way right now. So a very important uh, thing. If you, if you absolutely can't make it, please watch it. Um, you'll have to buy it or rent it. But come here. It's a free event if you can at all that evening to watch it for free and then ask some questions of, the, uh, of one of the producers. Uh, what a great privilege and opportunity to be able to, uh, to do that. Um, I did want to mention um, one other thing um, that uh, this morning in our message, there's going to be a lot of scripture. Sometimes I put a lot of scriptures up. And so it's a good reminder that we do have notebooks that we make available to you. Some of you um, take advantage of that. They're always on the, um, uh, they're on the Connection Center with our pens. And so if you like to take notes, this morning would be a great time to do that. So if you don't have a notebook, uh, Kim is back there and she can bring one to you if you want to raise your hand and and grab one if during the, the sermon you're like, yeah, Pastor Keith was right, i got to grab one. You can just go back to the Connection Center and grab one of them. But these, of course, are free, and uh, avail yourself of those. It's good maybe to take one and 
and have it for a new sermon series or a topical series, and you can take as many as you like. But a good opportunity to take notes, especially this morning, as we'll have a lot of scripture to go through. And before we dive in, finally, I wanted to invite uh, our elder Bruce to come up. He had a word or two to share. So Bruce, why don't you come up? Okay, well, good morning. I'm Bruce. My wife's not even expecting to come up here. It's kind of a surprise. And she's probably a little bit nervous, but anyway, uh, I want to share a word of encouragement encouraging world. A couple thoughts I've had in my morning. I don't want to really want to miss it. And a couple things came out of Remember the sermon last week focused beyond not the outside appearance of comparison. Heart situation. Even though they're preaching, you'll have righteousness. Kept flipping things around. And later on in that sermon, I talked about when we go to the You know, go to that person. That was great this morning, but that yesterday, afternoon, my wife and I trip to the podcast. Anyway, the podcast was about, the gentleman was talking about the kind of emotional issues that people have. He called it the rule of the court. Rule of the Emotional issues, depression, anxiety, loneliness, alcoholism. It was really interesting when, when someone would come to him and express this concern, first thing out of his mouth would be, Are you in the Word? Talk about it. Time he's been doing it. Unanimously, the person would say, Truthfulness, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Many of these things. So then, what he did is social scientists. Basically, they found out rule of the when you're in the Bible four times a week. Once all these issues sort of second time, same thing. Third. I'll have these problems. Then the fourth time, all of a sudden there's a radical difference. Radical difference. All of a sudden these emotional problems drop 50, 60. So, and then he said, out of, out of that, then sharing your faith goes astronomically high. I thought that was profound. My word of encouragement would be, how do you part of righteousness and not worry about How do you do that? That's like supernatural. That rule of the fourth, I would encourage you to word daily. And just, you know, figure out a system. There's all types of stuff you could do on your phone. It doesn't take long. But these numbers that my wife and I were listening to, I felt it kind of tied back to what you were talking about. I encourage you to get in some kind of way of every morning, 15 minutes, 
all these types of things diminish because we are in the heart and mind. That is Thank you, brother, for listening to the, the Holy Spirit, um, putting that on your heart to share. And uh, what a, a, a fitting thing. I didn't know that just until right before that Bruce had this on his heart to share, and it is um, a, a perfect introduction to our passage for today. Um, and so I'd like you to turn to Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and I think we're going to explore even more about how this principle that our elder Bruce mentioned, this principle of the fourth and getting into the word and making that uh, a habit of ours, a spiritual discipline, and the, uh, the amazing supernatural transformation that comes from that. Uh, and so please turn to that. You'll have a bunch of scriptures on the screen for you. Um, maybe too many to actually write them all out, but at least to write down the references. But in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, we're going to see that um, Jesus continues this great sermon of his. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember from this series that we are going through this Gospel of Matthew, it's a very Jewish-focused um, Gospel. And he is writing to believers, fairly new believers, um, who are Jewish, you know, but have now believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, as Savior, as the King. And he is confirming for them that, yes, he is the King. And so now he is, um, he is delivering this incredible message, the longest sermon we have of Jesus recorded in uh, the Scriptures. And it's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount because he went up to a mountain and he preached this sermon so everybody could hear him. And he started out with the Beatitudes about how to be happy and blessed in the Lord. And he is now getting into this uh, description of what a citizen of his kingdom looks like. Remember, he's the king offering the kingdom. That's why we call the series King and Kingdom. And he is telling uh, these first century um, believers, not even yet the church that hasn't happened yet, but these believers, disciples, and followers of his, what he expects of them, saying, I have come to offer the kingdom. They, they, the nation has not yet rejected him. And so he is offering the, the kingdom to them, and he's saying, this is what me and my father expect, the behavior, the attitudes, the heart attitude of um, his citizens. And if also, just as a last point of context, remember also that Jesus is pointedly calling out the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, because they were teaching the law in a very legalistic way and completely missing the heart of God in the law. And Jesus is bringing them back to the heart, right? And it really is piercing to the heart for the people to hear this and probably for us today as well. As last week we saw Jesus say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But he says, but I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart for a brother or sister, you're already guilty of that sin. So he continues that thought to drive the point home with a different illustration, a different example. And that's where we find ourselves 
today. And so this is the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus said to the religious leaders especially, and to everyone listening, you've heard it said, but I tell you. That's really important, because Jesus is commanding his authority to say these things, to talk about the law, and to tell the people that in order to get into my kingdom, your righteousness, he said earlier, needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, which they thought was completely impossible. And Jesus was like, yeah, that's the point. Because he gets to the heart of the law. So here's the example he gives in the next verses, just 27 to 30. This is our passage for today. And so last week, his illustration was about murder from the Ten Commandments. And now he gives this one. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. So he moves from murder to adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Of course, this goes for men and women. He's using men as an example. And then he further gives clarification. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus has some powerful words, doesn't he? If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So he says the same thing twice. First he uses the right eye, then he uses the right hand. So we're going to unpack this passage together this morning. Again, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Just make sure that you make a note of that mentally or in your notes or in your Bible, how important that is. Because again, Jesus is teaching his followers the heart of the law. He's saying, you've heard it said, you know the Ten Commandments, you've heard the religious leaders expound on this, and they just leave it as the action, saying, well, if you don't commit adultery, like outwardly, then you're okay, then you're righteous, you can get into heaven. But Jesus says, but I say to you, right, commanding that authority and attention, that everyone who simply looks at a woman for lust, lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Again, imagine the listeners just saying, I have no shot. <laughs> I have no chance. He said, I got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. He said that if it, it's not just about committing murder, but if I have hatred in my heart, he's like, we've all had hatred in our heart. And now he's going on. It's like he's laying it on, right? And Jesus is obviously making a point. And I have to say this, why would he do that? Because of the importance of the issue, because of the influence the religious leaders had over the people and how this was such a paradigm shift for these new believers in Jesus, for him to say, he's not changing the law, he's not saying throw out the Ten Commandments and the law of the Lord, he's saying don't miss the heart of God behind it where it's not just the outward action because that outward action comes from somewhere and it comes from the heart. He's saying check your heart. You know that old saying that we don't ever wanna miss the forest or the trees? What does that mean? It means we can get caught up in the weeds and the details and we can appreciate each tree in a forest, 
But if we don't step back and look and understand that each tree is part of a bigger thing, there's a bigger picture involved. And we don't want to miss the fact that there is this beautiful forest by just looking at one tree. So Jesus is saying this in a sense, let's not miss the heart of God by just focusing on the details of the law and thinking, well, if I don't outwardly commit adultery, then I'm okay. Because what does he say? He says it's better to cut the eye out than to cut the hand off and throw it away. See, he doesn't just say cut it out or cut it off. He says, and to throw it from you. Do you get the picture? I mean, every word Jesus says has a, a purpose, right? And has importance. So he's saying that to cut the eye out, to cut the hand off, and get it as far away from you as possible. Because it's better, he says, that you go into heaven. You enter into the kingdom without the eye, without the hand, than your whole body missing out on heaven and spending eternity in hell, as he says. So, let's unpack this, right? So, again, Jesus is giving another example of the heart of the law. It's the seventh commandment he's using now. From Exodus 20, verse 14, it's also mentioned in Deuteronomy 5. You know, one of the things about sin can make it so insidious. We realize that the vast majority of time when we commit a sin, when we're disobedient to God, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, there's usually not immediate consequences. Do you ever notice that? You have a sinful thought in your mind. You look around, nobody noticed that. Guess I got away with it, right? It's not like when you're told as a kid by your parents not to put your hand on the fire because, of course, you know you'll get burned, but that's an instant consequence, right? You put your hand on the fire, you are burned instantly. But normally when we commit a sin, there's no instant or immediate consequences. And so what does that do? It stirs up in us this idea to rationalize it away, to say, well, I didn't get caught. I won't do that again. And then you give in to the sin again. You say, well, but nobody noticed. So what harm can be done? See, that's what starts to happen in our relationship with sin. Lightning didn't strike me down when I just committed that sin or when I even committed, as Jesus said, in my mind with my sinful thoughts. See, we live in a world where we are trained right, to expect immediate gratification. And for the most part, we can access that in any way, pretty much in any time we want. But there is often no immediate consequences. Do you see the juxtaposition there? We, of course, need to rely on our faith and trust in God and not just the consequences. Like, oh, I touched the fire, I get burned, I won't touch the fire. How about the fact, as believers, God says, don't do this because it is my heart for you. That should be just as powerful, if not more, than actually touching the fire and being burned. It can lead us to thinking that it's not that bad. But yet we also know, Scripture makes it very clear, there are always still consequences to every action and every thought we have. We praise God as believers that we have 1 John to tell us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are sitting here today listening to my voice, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
just stand on that promise, right? That there's now no condemnation for us who believe in Lord Jesus, but yet there's still consequences to every sin, to every action, but yet we are invited to ask for forgiveness, confess those sins before your God, and he will help you to overcome them, and he will not, we know, hold it against us for the blood of Jesus Christ. But yet we know we are not perfect but forgiven, and so we can come before God. We can come before him with our sins. We can confess them. He is faithful and just to be forgiving and compassionate and loving. And it says also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to help us that we may not continue. Now, why would he give this example and use this next commandment in line, the seventh commandment of not committing adultery? Marriage is important to God. God wants to protect the sanctity of marriage. God established this institution of marriage as being between one man and one woman, Genesis 2.24. Jesus reiterates it in Matthew 19 and elsewhere. God created marriage to be a part of the foundation of his creation and of all human society. Do you see that? Go back and read Genesis. Right? Bruce, our elder, was, was, was uh, encouraging us, challenging us, be in the word this year. Remember our theme verse about Jesus saying he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. How do we know the truth if we're not in the word, his revelation to us? We heard it read in Psalm 19, his law is perfect and good, and the psalmist prays, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. We are to meditate on his word. Maybe Genesis will be in your devotionals this year. Go back and read it. Why? It's the foundation for all the rest of Scripture because in it we see God creating the institution of marriage, which he says in the Ten Commandments and many other places elsewhere, it is to be made and remain holy and sanctified, set apart for him. It is to be protected at all costs because it is a foundation of his. It is one of the divine institutions, we call them. And of course, our enemy Satan has been attacking all of God's creation from the day that he came and spoke to Adam and Eve. Do you believe that? That is why things like life and marriage have always been under attack in our society, now more than ever. But we are to protect the sanctity of marriage. It is a sacred union. Marriage is to reflect the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. You know, when Claudia and I have the great privilege of doing um, pre-marriage counseling for those couples that come and, and want to get counseling before their wedding day and after, it's a beautiful thing because, you know, couples spend so much time and energy and money preparing for the wedding day but not always preparing for the marriage, the big difference. But we will always talk about the meaning and importance of marriage, and ultimately, God created marriage, yes, to bless us, yes, for procreation so that there would be more people in the world to bless him and honor him, 
But ultimately, God creates the divine institution of marriage to reflect his sacrificial love for us. See, a Christian couple, a, a man and a woman, believers in marriage are to reflect that heart of God that Jesus is getting at and to reflect the image of God. And there is no greater example of God's sacrificial love towards us than the fact that John 3.16 says that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have everlasting life. And that, we can say amen to that. And we praise God for this too. You know, it's important that we say this because I mentioned First John, right, that, that as believers we know our sins are forgiven and if this is a sin that is particularly, that Jesus is talking about particularly um, sensitive for you and part of your history, remember that you are forgiven. The importance of that. I'm going to get to some other scriptures that are going to be able to, to, to encourage you all the more. But let's not miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying, remember the heart of a loving father. And he's saying, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, like just don't get into the act. But he says, if you have already, using that example, if you have already looked at a woman with lust for her, you've already committed adultery. That is God's true standard. How can we measure up to that? We cannot. Because his standard is perfect. That is why we need Jesus. If you take nothing else away from this, this morning, remember that. We cannot please God on our own to the point of salvation. Jesus has appeased God's wrath and hatred for sin by taking upon himself our sin and guilt and shame on the cross that whoever believes in him for doing that, that he's the only one, the way, the truth, and the life, and that he did that for you, the Bible says that you are saved. You are forgiven. Those sins are not held against you in God's court, as he mentioned last week. We praise God for that. So we continue on. That was verses 27, 28, 29, and 30, this interesting thing, right? We'll spend the rest of our time in this. He gives this example, right? It's the same in each, your right eye, your right hand. Not sure quite why he chooses the right eye or the right hand. Jesus mentions this elsewhere in Matthew 18, very similar teaching. He doesn't say the right, but there is some idea that in Jewish culture and tradition, the, the right hand is the, the, the side or the right side of the body, the right hand, the right eye, is a, a sign of blessing. There's the right versus the left, that the right side is a sign of blessing or of strength, and the left side is more of weakness. And maybe it has to do with the vast majority of people in the world are right-handed, and now we're not putting down anybody that's left-handed and saying that you're weaker, right? But it's just it's, it's part of a tradition and a culture where Jesus would know that, so it's almost as if, again, the, the passage doesn't describe it, but just kind of putting things together. Jesus is saying, how about even if the best part of you, the, the, the most blessed uh, eye that you have, the right eye, the strongest arm or hand that you have, the right hand, even if that fails you and calls you to sin, it's better you get rid of that best, most blessed part of your life if it's causing you to sin, if it's keeping you from God. So, he says, your right eye, and I'll read these together, your right hand makes you stumble, gouge it out, 
cut it off, throw it away, and that would be bed her for you. He gives us these two examples to make it clear. Don't we often need somebody to tell us something more than once until we get it? I think studies have shown you have to hear something at least seven times to quite understand it. If you want to stick around, I'll go through this seven times. We'll have lunch together and we'll, we'll go through it so that we can get it. This is a good reason why we take notes. Elsewhere, again, we go through it quickly. Matthew 18, he says the same thing. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. He, he understands the nature of sin. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Like You don't want to make somebody stumble lead to that. He says, again, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. Better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and to be cast in the eternal fire. He says the same thing. But how about this in Matthew 26, 40-41? When Jesus talks about this idea of this struggle that we have as Christians, the spirit and the flesh, we'll look at this now about the two natures that we have. You remember Jesus, right, in the garden, it says he came to the disciples, he found them sleeping. Remember Jesus at night before he was betrayed, and he asked his disciples, just stay up and pray for me and keep watch while I go and pray. And he found them sleeping, and he says to Peter, so you men could not keep watch for me just one hour? He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How often have you said that? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, we're going to see from other scriptures as well that they, as believers, you now have two natures. You have a new heart, a new spirit that God has put in you, but yet we still live in this nature of flesh. And Paul says that they are warring against each other. It's the, the daily temptation that Paul talks about. So. What is it in our lives that offends God? How do we know? We need to read the Bible regularly so that we can learn the heart of God. Because again, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had the written word of God, but yet they were missing it. So we need to read the scriptures, spend our time in prayer and devotion and meditation so that we can understand the heart of God because in that we will know what offends him, those things that we are to avoid. For our goal is to honor and worship and please God, not to offend him. And Jesus is saying, remove that offense from your life. Of course, he's not talking about mutilating yourself. He's not saying literally, again, to do that. It's almost like he's showing the, 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 the Pharisees what they would say, right? Taking the law like that, he's saying, He's giving an example. Of course, we're not to actually cut off our hand, but what does it symbolize? What does it represent? That we are to remove that offense in us. Ultimately, what leads to those actions, the murder, the adultery, it's the heart. How do we remove the heart? If the heart is wicked above all else, the scripture says, then we are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because in salvation in him alone, we get that new heart. Do you see why Jesus had to come? Why he had to die on the cross for our sins? Why we need to be made new in him? And Jesus says it in John 3, 3, you must be born again. 
That's what it means when we say, how do we get a new heart? What does that look like? Jesus called it being born again. You've heard that phrase, right? I'm a born again Christian. It means that you believe what Jesus said and that he meant it, that we must be born again. Remember he was questioned like, how can I go back into my mother's womb? Like, that doesn't make sense. Jesus, of course, what is he talking about? Spiritually and supernaturally, our heart. We must be born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is then in Christ or born again, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are new in Christ. You now have the ability to say no to that temptation of sin, of murder, of adultery. As believers, of course, we still sin. But the life of a believer is supposed to be marked by growth and maturing and putting off the old self, putting on the new self. That's what we call sanctification. Do you see that? Justification, that theological word, is when we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are set right before God. Our position before God has changed from one of separation from him eternally to now knowing that we have eternal life in him. We have been reconciled to God. That's our justification. Sanctification, what happens the rest of our lives on this earth until he comes back. Sanctification is simply us, as we say here at Trinity, learning and growing and serving. It's becoming more like Christ. Sanctified means set apart for God. Church, this is the goal of every Christian each and every day. Maybe you've kind of lost your way and lost, what's my purpose in life? Well, I tell you, the most important part of your identity is being a son or daughter of the King, of Jesus Christ, being a child of God. What does God want from you? He wants you to bring him glory and worship him. Worship him. How do we do that? By living out the faith that he's given us. Living it out each and every day. That's the most important thing we can do. If you're married, it's about loving your wife, right? You're loving God, you're loving your wife, and as a picture of the gospel so others will see and know. That is the most important thing. Our purpose in life is not based on our job and what we do for money. It's not based on your ethnicity, your marital status. How tall you are, how short you are, how you look. Your identity is in Christ. In Christ we are new creations. And then we spend the rest of our lives living out what Paul says there. The old is gone, the new has come. Yes, we have these two natures but we now have the power and the ability to say no to sin. Right? Romans 7, 14 to 25. The classic passage from the Apostle Paul on this struggle. Read it. You've probably heard it before, but just read it along with me in your mind. Just make sure we get this. Look at what Paul is saying, okay? Paul is saying, I'm right there with you. This is what the battle looks like. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Can you resonate with that? For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. See, he now understands sin. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. 
that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, is what Jesus said. He goes on, for I do not do that good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is, in, is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. You want to just end there and leave? What would you learn at church today? Man, I am a wretched person. Who will, but here's the hope. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. We say amen. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. See, Paul, in this amazing passage, in this Romans 7 passage, he basically just pours it all out. He says, this is what it's like. Because we all resonate with that. He's like, all the good things I know that I should do, I can't do it. And all the things that I shouldn't do, that's what I wind up doing. What a wretched man. He says, there is this war inside of me. He's admitting, I'm, I'm new in Christ, but I have this sinful nature still until Jesus comes back. See, that's the glorification part of, of our salvation. There's justification. The moment we're saved, we are set and sealed in Christ. Nobody can take that away from us. Uh, sanctification is living it out, becoming more like Christ, right? Saying no to the sinful nature, saying yes to the new heart, the new spirit God has given us. It's basically like living like the new person you are in Christ, matching up your behavior, your thoughts to the new person that you are in Jesus. The glorification part of our salvation process is yet to come. That's when Jesus comes back for us, or he calls us home to heaven. And at that point, there will be no presence of sin in our life. See, the, the, the penalty of sin has been paid in Jesus. We no longer need to fear that. The power of sin has been overcome by Jesus and the cross and the, the empty tomb, the empty grave. So therefore, we don't have to say yes to sin anymore. Paul says he used to be a slave to it. Now he's a slave to righteousness. But the presence of sin is still with us, and that will remain that is the sinful nature, the old nature, until Christ returns. A few more pieces of Scripture I think are important before we close. So as believers, we know we have this dual nature. What it says in Ephesians 4, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Again, this is Paul. That was Romans. Now this is Ephesians, writing to the Ephesians church. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Sounds like Romans 12. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's like he's saying that you're new, and he likens it to maybe like clothes, right? You put on the new clothes. 
right? So that the clothes match the newness. What are you saying? Right? We can all picture that. But on the new suit, the new clothes, he's saying, clothe yourself with the newness. Put on the new self, which is the likeness of God. He's saying, inside, supernaturally, with a new heart and a new spirit, you are now made right with God. Now act like it. That's what he says. Don't keep putting on the old clothes. Put on the new stuff. Right? My wife and I went to the mall yesterday. First time in forever. Very different experience. We had to do a little clothes shopping. There's a few stores we could only see that were in the mall. Pretty sad, actually. Half the stores were empty and boarded up. The last time you were at the mall. People are shopping differently these days, right? We were reflecting. We felt pretty old. We were reflecting how growing up in the, in the 80s, like that was where you went. You went to the mall. You went shopping. You went to hang out, right? See your friends. Not anymore. I don't know. Just a side note. It's not really important to what I'm talking about, but decided if you're going to buy new clothes to put on the new self, don't go to the mall. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Where do you go? You go to your phone, Amazon. Right? Amazon killed them all. That's okay. So, in light of all this, it's an important question to ask. How do we stop sinning? It's one thing to say, here's the scriptures. Jesus says, don't do it. Jesus says, if you just lust after someone in your mind, right, then you've committed adultery. So we're all adulterers and we all deserve hell. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying, again, remember, keep it in context. He's saying God's righteous standard is perfection. We'll never be able to attain that because we still have the old nature warring with the new nature that connects us with God. We'll never be able to come per, become perfect enough in this life, be holy enough, be Jesus-like enough. So we need Jesus to do it for us. So how is it that we can stop sinning? How do we live according to this new nature and not the old nature? How do we put on the new clothes and not the old ones? When we understand that we are not to offend God and his standard, how do we do that? There's the application. This is great. So what, Pastor? How do we do this? I mean, Paul was struggling with it. We are. First, I want to say this. Remember who you are. This is what we were just saying. Remember you are new in Christ. The first step to defeating sin in your life, that victory in Jesus each and every day over those sinful thoughts, Remember, you are new in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. The penalty and power have been removed. Right before Paul gave us that whole treatise in Romans 7 about how I I, I do what I don't want to do and the things that I I want to do, I don't do them. Right before that, okay, I'm going to skip to this. He says this. Thanks be to God that through you, uh, that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Do you see that? The old and the new. Paul is saying, before Christ, you used to be a slave to sin. You couldn't help yourself. You had no power to say no to temptation. So the first point in, in learning how to do this as a believer 
is remembering who you are, church. You are new in Christ. You now are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, is what he says. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Saying, stand firm in your faith. You'll be tempted to go back to acting like the slave that you were, but he's saying that's not who you are anymore. Realize your new identity, accept it, and embrace it and receive it, for that is the truth of who you are. Later in Galatians 5, later on in that chapter, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There's the answer. How do we do this? Walk by the Spirit. How do we walk by the Spirit? Trust and obey. Being obedient to God's Word and His standard means that we are walking by the Spirit. It's not some magical thing. How do we walk by the Spirit? How do we listen to the Holy Spirit and walk by the Spirit day by day, the Spirit who is within us? Well, be obedient to God and to trust Him. Trust and obey. That's the, that's the answer. Four, the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. See the battle? And the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So again, he is making it clear. He's saying, look, this is the reality of your life as a Christian. You're made new, but yet there's still going to be this battle. And you don't have to give in to that temptation. You don't have to lose that battle of sin because you now have the power to say no to temptation. Secondly, so first we understand who we are and the power that we have. So secondly, really goes along with it, the Holy Spirit gives you this power to resist temptation. You have to understand, because of who you are, the second part of that is you can't do it on your own. See, the Christian life is not about trying harder. Man, I'm just going to try harder today. No, no we, we wonder why we, we fail sometimes. It's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering more. See the difference? There's a world of difference. It's not about just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just trying harder. It's about surrendering. Lord God, I am yours. You have made me new. Help me, God. I can't do this on my own. Holy Spirit, lead me. Help me. I, I, I want to read the scriptures every day. There's just something that's, that's getting in my way. Show me what it is. Lord God, help me. Help me to do that. I cannot do this on my own. Surrender to the Holy Spirit, instead of just trying on your own. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Every believer has the Holy Spirit within them, the moment you believe. Whom you have from God, God gave it to you. And that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Talk about understand who we are. Paul is saying, you know what? That moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive that free gift of salvation, because you're not your own anymore. You can't just say, thank you, God. Uh, I have eternal life. I'm going to heaven forever. Now I can just go do what I want. Thanks, God. See you later. It doesn't work that way. He's saying, actually, the truth of it is, the reality is, you don't even belong to yourself anymore. In, in essence, in God's standard, you don't have the right to do what it is that you just want to do apart from God. He's saying, you've been bought with a price, the price of Jesus' blood. Therefore, Glorify God in your body because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Galatians 2.20. We memorized this. Guys did just recently. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself up, who loves me and gave himself up for me. What a powerful verse. Paul, again, is saying it there. I've been crucified with Christ. Like, I don't live my own life now, but it's Christ in me. He's like, I want people to see Christ. There's no longer a Paul. It's Jesus. That's my life now. That's my life's purpose. I am a believer in the Lord Jesus. The life I now live in this flesh, again, this battle, flesh and spirit, I live by faith. Right? I live by faith. Galatians, uh, oh, Genesis 39. This is important. This is the third part. So we have to remember who we are in Christ, remember the power that we have to say no to sin, and third, how about we remove the opportunity to sin? This is a very practical point. Remove the opportunity. I was talking to a pastor friend recently. He was talking about um, uh, struggles in his, as he's counseling the struggles with people with um, alcohol, as an example. And somebody was saying to him, you know, if I could just remove the bar, you know, then there won't be that temptation. He says, how about you don't remove the bar, but you remove the car? Not literally, but like how you remove the opportunity to even get there, right? The idea. The old saying, don't play with fire. Love this example from Genesis 39 of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember that? Went to Sunday school. You probably heard this all the time, right? At least once a month. So here's that story. So Joseph, who is risen in the ranks, right, in Pharaoh's house, and uh, he, he works for Potiphar. He's kind of like the king or the lead of the, of the guard. And Potiphar's wife is coming after him, trying to seduce him. And Joseph is trying to be righteous and upstanding. And so Joseph is saying this, there is no one greater in this house than I, meaning I have complete authority because Potiphar has given it to me. And he has withheld nothing from me except for you. He's talking to Potiphar's wife. And he's saying, your husband Potiphar is a great guy. He has given me this important job, this important status. I am I am more important than anybody here except Potiphar. He's given me all this authority, right? He has withheld nothing except for you, Potiphar's wife, because you are his wife. How then could I do this when she's tempting him? She says, sleep with me. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? I wanted to make sure we saw that. That's why I included this. You see what Joseph's heart, what he's saying here? He's saying, how could I do a great evil and sleep with you, commit adultery? Because that would be a great evil and sin against Potiphar, the guy who I'm trying to honor and respect, who trusts me, and it would be a sin against God. You see that? So Joseph is recognizing both would be sinful and evil. So, verse 10, as he spoke, uh, as she, meaning Potiphar's wife, spoke to Joseph day after day. How about that? Does that temptation come to us just once and that's it? Day after day, the temptation came. We can relate to that. So as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. He is resisting that temptation because his heart is right with God, you see? He's like, I don't want to sin against my boss. He's been really good to me. And I don't want to sin against God even more importantly. So now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. He's going about his business. And none of the men of the household was there inside. Red flag. He goes in there. It's just him. There's no other guys around. 
You know what's about to happen, right? So she, meaning Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me, go to sleep with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. That was Joseph's reaction. He kept saying no. He explained why. He's just going about a business, doing his work. He showed up one day. Temptation took a turn. Now there was no other guys around him to keep him accountable, to be a witness, right? So now she catches him by his garment. Something new. Come on, let's do this. Day after day. So it's almost like he says enough is enough, right? I, I can't just say no again. So what does he do? He removes himself from the situation. He ran out of the house and fled. He went outside the house where there would be witnesses and he could get away from the temptation. So the third thing is, how about we remove as best we can that temptation from us, right? There's a reason that these stories resonate with us. Author James McDonald kind of describes this, our response as believers to sin and how we can overcome it. He gives this funny illustration. It's a picture of a, a man walking down the street. This is, a, again, an illustration of a believer's response to sin. See if this, see if this um, connects with you. So, day one. I went for a walk down a street. I fell into a hole. I didn't see the hole. It took me a long time to get out of the hole. It's not my fault. Second day, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell into the same hole. It took me a long time to get out of that hole. Why did I do that? On the third day, I went for a walk down the same street. Fell into that same hole. I got out quickly, but it is my fault. Day four, I went for a walk down the same street. I saw that same hole. I walked around it. On day five, I went for a walk down a different street. The progression there, maybe that we can all relate to. I'll leave you with these verses. Finally, the last thing. Again, how do we resist temptation? How do we say no to sin? In our minds, our hearts, our actions, realizing who we are in Christ, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, that we don't have to say no to sin. We remove the temptation as best as we can. And then finally, let us remember grace, the grace of God. Grace is not just for salvation that we are saved by grace through faith. Grace is something we are to live by the rest of our lives as believers. It's a huge important part of our sanctification. We are to live by the grace of God each and every day. Grace is simply unmerited favor of God. God gives us what we do not deserve. That's when we cry out to God, God, help me through the power of your spirit to overcome these sins, to say no to this temptation. God, be merciful and gracious to me. Live by grace, the grace of God, so that we don't become legalistic, so that we don't get hyper-focused like the Pharisees did on just keeping the letter of the law and checking boxes, then we'll be okay. It is not the heart of God. The heart of God is of grace. Galatians 3, 1 through 3, it says this. I want to make sure I get back to that. I've kind of, yeah, thanks. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? You silly Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here's why I put that up. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, okay, let's, let's think of it logically. You know you weren't saved by the great works you've done. He's saying you recognize that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. That the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. You are now that new person in Christ. He says you've recognized that you cannot earn salvation on your own. It wasn't your good works, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But now he's, and he reminds us, like, okay, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? They would say, no, no, of course, by faith, right? We know we're not saved by the law. He says, but you're being so foolish. So you know that your, your salvation, your walk with Christ began by the Spirit, but now you're trying to perfect that and live it out by your flesh? How foolish is that? Because if God saved you, you don't just do the rest on your own. God then gives you through his grace the power and ability through the Holy Spirit to then live out this Christian life. You see how foundational and how important this is, right? And we will end with this. Can you stand with me, please? Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. See, our introduction by faith, by grace, we stand, we spend our lives giving God glory. Remember who you are, the power that you have. Remove that temptation and live by grace. That leads to having that peace, that peace with God. Even in those times that we sin, we come back to God, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. Again, that peace is restored. There's a reason that we don't live in peace, even with God and with others, even as believers. It is because of sin. We have the ability to live that victorious life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Father God, thank you for this time together. Please bless us as we leave. May we remember these words, these many, many words from the scriptures this morning. God, thank you for the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Thank you for Jesus' powerful teaching on the importance of the law, but the heart of God behind the law. Oh, Father, we want to be citizens of that coming kingdom here and now. We want to live it out. We want to look like citizens of that kingdom here and now. Father God, go before us. Holy Spirit, prepare the way. Remind us of these truths of who we are and who you are again and again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church, for joining us this morning. Go in peace.